Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Today, we have two segments to the show. First, I speak with Jay Van Bavel, an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University, about social media, misinformation, and collective behavior following a week in which he was brigaded by far-right and anti-vaccine personalities for calling into question the veracity of claims made in Joe Rogan's popular podcast. And second, I catch up with Trooper Sanders, the CEO of Benefits Data Trust, about new broadband benefits intended to close the digital divide and the coordination that is necessary among federal agencies to make sure the funds set aside by law reach the people that need them most. In a recent episode of the Joe Rogan podcast, which has millions of listeners but has been criticized for repeatedly spreading misinformation and false claims related to the COVID-19 pandemic and vaccines, a doctor called Robert Malone invoked what he called the concept of, quote, mass formation psychosis, unquote, to explain why the majority of people believe in what he characterized as a mainstream COVID-19 narrative, trusting both the safety and efficacy of vaccines. In the December 31st episode, the doctor, whose account was recently removed from Twitter for repeatedly spreading misinformation about COVID-19, raised doubts about the safety of the vaccines and claimed something called, quote, mass psychosis led to, quote, a third of the population basically being hypnotized into believing what medical experts say. He said the concept explained Nazi Germany. The episode prompted enough concern in the public health community that a group of nearly 300 doctors, nurses, scientists, and educators issued a letter calling on Spotify, which signed Rogan to an exclusive deal worth more than $100 million in 2020, to create a misinformation policy to inform what it should do about shows like Rogan's, which reach millions while having very low fidelity to facts, a real problem in a time of public health crisis. The authors of the Letter of Concern wrote that while Spotify has a responsibility to mitigate the spread of misinformation on its platform, the company presently has no misinformation policy. You can find a link to the letter at Tech Policy Press. Now, here's where Jay Van Bavel, the psychology professor at NYU, comes into the story. I got to speak with Jay about how a simple fact check of Malone who is a hero to right-wing politicians, far-right personalities, and anti-vaxxers, resulted in him getting brigaded and threatened. Given his field of study, he was able to put the incident into the context of his research. Here's Jay. My name is Jay Van Bavel. I'm an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. So, Jay, what happened to you this week? Well, I got an email a few days ago from Reuters asking me if I had ever heard of the concept mass formation psychosis. And I had just finished a book uh, published a few months ago on the psychology of identity and groups and collective behavior. And I had never heard of that term. Uh, So I did a search online and uh, looking among academic and scholarly articles, and I didn't find a single article on it. And so I contacted them back and said, no, this does not sound like a legitimate scientific concept, certainly not one with any evidence behind it. Uh, then I was invited a, a day or two later by the Associate Pre- Associated Press uh, with a similar question with some more context. And I you know, told them very similar things to what I told Reuters magazine. In the meantime, they also reached out to a handful of other experts in collective psychology, uh, in hypnosis and psychosis. And 
all of them uh, agree that this concept uh, was certainly not one that was in the scholarly literature and also the way it was described by Robert Malone on uh, the Joe Rogan podcast was one that didn't make sense really at all given what we know about human psychology. Uh, so this seemed pretty small. I shared a short thread about it on social media saying that I you know, had been asked about this and I didn't think it was a real concept and that it sounded like you know, it had been hashed together on a podcast and in the context in which it was used, it was also used to dismiss people who were, you know, trying to engage in like proper public health behaviors. And so it was, it's a way of, as I could understand it, dismissing the behavior of the vast majority of people, not only in, in the United States, but around the world uh, who've been vaccinated and wearing masks and getting COVID tests and trying to be healthy, not only for themselves, but their community. It's a way of trying to accuse all of those people of being in a state of psychosis. And people doing that were compared uh, through analogy to the Nazis in Nazi Germany by Robert Malone. And so it seemed like a way of creating a fictitious concept or pseudoscientific concept to uh, validate the corner of the universe that believed a number of conspiracy theories about COVID and vaccines and uh, dismissing the scientific evidence and behaviors that people, the vast majority of people are, are taking to uh, help mitigate the pandemic. So how did this manifest itself in, in your life? How were you contacted by individuals who disagreed with your assessment? Yeah, so I thought that was the end of it. I've never really been asked to do a fact check before for a major newspaper, but I get asked to comment on things all the time related to my area of expertise. And the AP fact check blew up. I, I think actually I, I got a text from my co-author Dominic Packer the next morning and saying, it's trending on Twitter, <laughs> um, this AP article right next to some article about uh, people talking about Geraldo Rivera, who is up to something, I don't know what. And then when I, by the time I logged on, it had been put to the top trending topic on Twitter as a fact check of this, this mass formation psychosis. And at that point is when people like uh, Jack Posebic, who's a, uh, you know, has 1.5 million followers. He's uh, tracked on hate groups as a white supremacist, uh, has, was involved in Pizzagate and other conspiracy theories. Um, he was started to blast me, started to accuse me of all of lies and all number of things and tag me and post my papers. And that led to a wave uh, after wave of, of people appearing in my mentions, criticizing me, harassing me, calling me names, sending me pictures of uh, attached to my name with pictures of my papers saying this you like they caught me red handed in a heist or something like that um, by just showing that I had published papers on COVID and collective behavior. Um, they also sent me, you know, one guy tagged me in a bunch of pictures with a rainbow dildo. Um, people started emailing me and harassing me. They, uh, I've had several people email me to just try to discredit me and they have sent it to my provost and university president and the board of trustees at NYU. They went into LinkedIn and sent me, you know, kind of demeaning messages. They went into my Instagram and sent me harassing messages and filled up the comments, commented on my partner's Instagram and a, a picture of our kid who got a vaccine. Um, so it was just like an altogether really creepy cascade, almost like a tsunami of this stuff. And again, I would say 80% of it, I don't care about, you know, people tagging me in my paper saying this you. I don't care. You, all my papers are public on my website, but it's the stuff about like harassing my partner and, and harassing little children and, and, and in a way that, and trying to maybe like get me discredited or fired at work that seemed uh, way over the top. So I had to lock uh, my social media accounts from these individuals. 
one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is, of course, not only because of this incident, which, you know, played out on social media and, you know, has resulted uh, even in more recently uh, a group of uh, a, a couple of hundred other scientists, doctors, nurses, et cetera, calling on uh, Spotify, uh, the music platform, to implement a social media uh, misinformation policy, essentially, in response to Joe Rogan's podcast in this particular episode with, uh, with Robert Malone. But also because, you know, you study these phenomena, you study um, psychology, you study uh, online behavior, um, collective behavior. Are you able to put yourself under the microscope a bit, put, put this incident under the microscope a bit and apply some of the theoretical frameworks that, that you've developed to it? Yeah, sure. So the, although clearly Robert Malone was wrong about this mass formation psychosis, there is a lot of research, including research I do and I've written about uh, by others, that looks at how false belief systems happen um, and how misinformation spreads online. And there are a lot of like interesting kind of signature features of this of the, in the way that I've studied it. So one is that this information travels, it's often generated by hugely influential accounts like Jack Pusiba, however you pronounce his name, or, or Robert Malone getting on a big platform like uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. And then it gets blasted out to a large number of people. Um, and some of these people have been so marinated in misinformation. Um, they also want to believe this because then it like validates their worldview that all the people following COVID guidelines are getting vaccinated or are crazy. That's, I think, what the psychological function of this, this new idea is based on. And then they spread it. They spread it online. And this, you know, some people wrote like blogs or like kind of like far right online newsletter or, or website based pieces trying to discredit me that were widely shared. And they take, they went through my feed and took things out of context and shared it. And so this is the type of stuff that gets a lot of engagement among a highly segmented group of uh, internet users. Um, we already know that most of the posts on internet around like political issues or polarized issues are by people at the extremes. Now this is a segment of it is at the very far extreme. And so they're often super engaged, super passionate about the issue. I will say the one thing that that is consistent with how I think of leadership that, that is actually quite different from ash from Mason psychosis when it comes to spreading misinformation was, it wasn't that these kind of influential accounts who are criticizing me or attacking me were telling people to criticize me or attack me. They would maybe tag me or criticize me. And then it would lead hundreds of other people who followed them to be incredibly creative. So this wasn't like a typical attack you might expect from this kind of conspiracy theory corner of, of Twitter, where it would be like Russian bots repeating the same thing over and over again. These seem to be genuine individuals creating uh, all kinds of memes and insults and uh, digging into my papers to try to like find out, find a smoking gun that, that somehow would embarrass me or emailing my, my uh, bosses at work. Um, this was a very creative way of uh, attacking people who are critical of their, their belief system. And, and it actually fits with what uh, the research on identity leadership calls engaged followership. That when people actually are buy into a belief system or, or any group membership or identity, they start to identify with it. And then they become very creative in trying to uh, you know, infer what they think the, 
the leaders and the elites in the group want to happen. And so that actually was one of the most interesting things about it, I, I think, was I was trying to like make sense of it and understand the psychology of these people as they were piling on me. And it actually, you know, mass formation psychosis implies everybody's hypnotized or doesn't understand reality and is an automaton when they're spreading misinformation. Actually, this looked very different from that. What it looked like is that these are people are actively engaged in this misinformation universe and spreading it and harassing people who are experts or fact checking them in a way that that looked almost like the opposite of mass formation psychosis. And so that's actually how leadership works in groups, large groups, national groups uh, and organizations. If you could have a sensible conversation uh, with these individuals, what would you want to tell them about this concept of collective behavior um, that you think might even be useful to them? Is there is there any any bridge to be built here? I mean, I tried to engage with people who first started criticizing my very first fact check thread. And what I found, and Gord Pennycook, who's also a misinformation researcher, you know, after they started piling on me, he offered to, he asked them to send him a single paper providing evidence of their claims. And you could see how I argued with them and I watched how he argued with them. And we're trying to have rational arguments, which means like they make a claim, we ask for evidence, they send us, might send us something, and then we try to explain how it fits in, if it's related or not or clarifying that they might be confused about the different concepts. And some people will engage a little bit and then they just disengage, but most people just start insulting them or insulting me. And so for example, like when Gord Pennycook was explaining someone's argument was irrational, he immediately just said, well, you have pronouns in your bio and therefore you're an idiot. It turns into a level of insult and harassment and trolling. In this case, it was like transphobic. In other cases, like with the rainbow dildos and people tagging me in that, I'm assuming that that is like homophobic. Um, there was a couple female scholars and experts who weighed in. And then I saw that the comments to them got like very sexually inappropriate. So it's one of those things where there might be a small number of people in, in that group who are open-minded who can engage you in a conversation. And I know some of these people who are kind of conspiratorial, but I can still talk to them in real life. Um, online, it seems like there's very little hope of that happening. And online, it seems like most of what their goal is, is just to harass you or remind me of, um, when hackers try to shut down a website, they do this like deny massive denial of service. A lot of it is like waves of people kind of insulting you or tagging you or, or linking to stuff with you that's irrelevant. And it just becomes overwhelming. So you can't argue with them. And then they accuse you of not engaging with them, which I think is their whole point all, all along. And so then you have to eventually just disengage completely or shut down. And so I think if you could get somebody one-on-one, -on -one, I'd be certainly open to talking to any person. I'd certainly be open to debating this with Robert Malone or whoever else believes, you know, wants to push this type of theory, but it would require them having an open mind and being willing to update their thinking. Um, the other thing I will say is I study things like group psychology, cult psychology, misinformation, conspiracy theory. So I'm happy to explain how those work. Um, the main point I would say though, is that those apply just as much, if not more, to the anti-vax community than the pro-vax community, because the pro-vax community is now over 4 billion people. You know, we're not coordinating online like this and spreading misinformation. These people are, and they're the ones who have uh, many distorted beliefs that aren't accurate. And so, you know, they have to be prepared to understand that the psychology is being used against them, and, and often by people who are monetizing it. So Robert Malone has thousands of paid subscribers on his newsletter. He's probably making many, many six figures many times over 
um, by spreading this misinformation. Uh, whereas like most of us will never see that kind of income from anything. So there's like a, a universe where the people at the top in this, in this environment are, are monetizing it and exploiting a large number of people, I think. I was interested to see uh, James uh, Sirowiecki, who you know writes for the New Yorker and wrote that book, The Wisdom of Crowds, who commented that it was comical to see anti-vaxxers who love to call other people sheep all suddenly reciting mass formation psychosis on mass, like hypnotized drones. Oh, 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 yeah, I didn't see that tweet, but that is a funny irony. Yeah, of course. Let me ask you this: Let's just step back from this incident and talk a little bit more broadly about. The problem of, of misinformation, the problem of, of this sort of behavior in our environment. You shared also earlier this week a nature review, which I found very interesting and, and read closely, um, of the available empirical evidence about uh, misinformation and how we're able to confront it. It also had some policy recommendations in there. Do you think it's possible for us to sort of fix this internet environment that we've got at the moment, possibly to di- discourage the type of phenomenon you experienced this week? Or do you reckon we'll live through this for another decade? Oh, goodness. I used to be more hopeful that social media could be tweaked and improved and that the people in power at these organizations would do more. And having just seen tons and tons of evidence over and over again, how this is we failed to regulate this and now being in the middle of it where just a simple fact check of a term that was made up like a few weeks ago led to massive levels of harassment and and backlash um just even makes me more cynical i don't know i I think you're if you're going to address this you can use all kinds of nudges and friction but i think there might have to be more heavy-handed intervention if you're going to stop this and that means like taking people who spread misinformation, uh, you know, maybe taking them offline more, more regularly for longer periods of time till they stop doing it. I think you might have to find ways to cut off them monetizing it. I guess that's what the letter to Spotify is supposed to be. Um, because if the people at the top are making huge amounts of money off of it, then it's, you know, always, there's always gonna be an incentive to do it. This was kind of like Alex Jones at Infowars. It's like, he was selling all kinds of like snake oil on his website forever making millions and millions of dollars. And a lot of the people spreading misinformation about COVID have been, you know, they go to their websites and they're selling all kinds of nonsense. And it's dangerous for people, but but they've exploited the psychology of these vulnerable people who are confused and are exposed to too much misinformation. So until there's a serious effort to, to deal with this, I just think it's going to continue. Because guess what? For, let's say, Jack Posebic or whoever's, I keep mispronouncing his name, uh, he probably got more followers and engagement out of this than than many other things he does. And I don't know what his angle is, what his income is, but uh, if he is driving people to his website or his blog or whatever, he has probably you know made made a sizable sum of money just by her, by kind of inspiring harassment against against me. So I don't know. It it makes it or Robert Malone like think of the amount of extra subscribers he's gotten from people just fact checking him and explaining that he's wrong. He's actually probably made tens of thousands of dollars off that in the last week. So it, it, it's, there's like a lot of perverse incentives in the system. There's also a thing about like, he got deplatformed for Twitter by Twitter and YouTube, but then just went to Substack and probably has made even more money off of it. So there is definitely a tricky thing when there's like a voracious demand by a small, but large, you know, small, but meaningful segment of society who's really passionate about finding evidence 
you know, confirmation bias for these beliefs that they have. You know, you're right that there's such a huge business in a lot of these behaviors. And we just saw in uh, court documents, you know, it revealed just a couple of weeks ago that Alex Jones had made $165 million in sales uh, between 2015 and 2018. That was in the lawsuit, of course, that he lost over lies about the Sandy Hook school massacre. I don't know exactly how much money, you know, uh, people like uh, Jack or uh, the person he fills in sometimes for uh, Steve Bannon on his podcast, how much they make from these ventures. Um, But it does seem like it's an enormous sum of money. Yeah. And they also like the other thing I, it's easy to see once you're interacting with these folks is that the incentive structure of their world is the opposite of mine. Like to have credibility, I have to publish papers and, and provide evidence and, and then provide rational, make rational arguments. They don't have to do any of that. In fact, if, if they get fact-checked, that actually gives them more money. If I made a claim and every expert in the field fact-checked it, my status in the field would drop. I stopped getting invited to talks. It might actually hurt my like tenure of promotion prospects. It would be very damaging to me. In this universe, it's the exact opposite. Something like this happens, it just drives more tension and traffic to their nonsense. And so as long as there's this, you know, they live in, it reminds me of if you ever watched the show Stranger Things, they live in the upside down where the logic and structure of evidence and, and how things operate and what gets status and rewarded is really the opposite of the world that I live in, the world that like lawyers and journalists and people at like reality-based institutions live in. I don't know. Is there at this point any chance we can kind of break this cycle, particularly with the right in the United States? I mean, it, it, it does seem that there's a, uh, a good amount of empirical evidence at this point that many of these phenomena with regard to misinformation are more pronounced on the right. There's an asymmetry um, in terms of those behaviors. And it seems almost locked in at this point. Like it's hard to separate the political right in the United States from these phenomena. Do you think there's anything there that could be done? Yeah. I mean, it's hard when it gets locked into political identities. And that's why I think this is piggybacking on, right? Because if you think about the previous 10 years of anti-vaxxers, it was not partisan. There was like some hippie moms and some kind of uh, traditional religious communities. And that's where you saw like measles outbreaks happening because people weren't getting the vaccine. With COVID, it became very politicized. In fact, I have some new data with some collaborators. We found that when we looked across the whole country, the proportion of uh, that that a county voted for Trump over Biden in the last election was the single biggest predictor of uh, vaccine hesitancy across the entire country. And not only was it the biggest, it was five times bigger than the next biggest predictor. So this is just such a central part of of the identity for so many of these people. And it's gonna be hard to back away from it. I will say that, I don't know if fixing the misinformation thing will be easy in in that universe, but there was a comment by Trump this week that made me kind of at least give me hope that the vaccine conversation might shift. He started, he came out and he started criticizing a Florida's governor Ron DeSantis, he call, I think Trump called him gutless because DeSantis refuses to say if he got a booster. And tr- I believe Trump has got a booster and then uses kind of like the rhetoric of fragile masculinity to criticize DeSantis. And if Trump wants to maintain power and maybe run again in the next primary, he can use that to diminish all these leaders who refuse to admit that they're privately getting vaccinated, but publicly won't say it. And if Trump makes vaccination manly, then maybe a lot of these people, by the way, like 90% of the people who are like trolling me were men, if not more. Um, these are like 
the type of it's you know the people exactly who you'd predict are, are Trump supporters, and they follow him, and and he hasn't been able to I think convince them yet. He hasn't really tried that hard, but I, I think that there might be potential for some movement if he's stuck stuck with that for a long period of time. But of course, Trump was like one of the biggest purveyors of misinformation online that there was. So even if he rises to power again, then or even runs in the next primary, you definitely run the risk of him sharing all kinds of other misinformation. But we'll see. We'll see if these forces uh, are willing to continue to support him or in the wake of him making statements that go against their uh, belief system that perhaps they'll turn on him as well. Maybe yeah. he'll get, maybe he'll get a rainbow dildo in the. <laughs> yeah, he he did um, maybe like a month ago or so. He did go to a rally and uh, advocated for vaccines. I think he's trying to retroactively get credit for helping develop it. And he got booed by his own supporters at his own rally. So. I think this is a, there. There might, it might be set in stone now. These anti-vax attitudes and how central they are to the, the kind of this base of people who normally are supporters by how he talked about the pandemic for the previous two years. Um, so he might have missed his window to to shape the conversation there. I don't know. We'll we'll see. Jay, where can folks find out more about your ideas if they wish to engage with them, uh, <laughs> you know, in a rational way? <laughs> um, if you like science and are willing to update your beliefs and learn, um, you can go to powerofus.online and it is the website for where my book is. Um, it has a summary of each chapter, a summary of the book, has a link to our newsletter, which is, uh, you know, every couple of weeks we share a summary of, um, you know, some topic related to groups and identity to make people smarter about these issues, including talking about online uh, technology and uh, misinformation and these types of issues. And it's free. So uh, I won't be grifting uh, <laughs> as effectively as Robert Malone, but I encourage you to check it out. And if you're interested, uh, you can also check out the book. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. According to Trooper Sanders, the CEO of Benefits Data Trust, the new Affordable Connectivity Program, part of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act passed by the United States Congress in November, provides a historic opportunity to connect millions of Americans and address the digital divide. Trooper's organization focuses on how to get such benefits to the people that need them most, and I spoke with him about the opportunity and what needs to happen to make sure this broadband benefit reaches the homes of those it is intended to empower. Make sure to check out his piece titled New Broadband Benefits Require Federal Agency Cooperation to Close Digital Divide on Tech Policy Press. Here's Trooper. Uh, Trooper Sanders, CEO of Benefits Data Trust. Trooper, what is Benefits Data Trust? So Benefits Data Trust, we were founded in 2005 and really with the, with the simple mission of connecting people to public benefits to help them pay for healthcare, buy a better bag of groceries, heat their home. 
in some ways it's a very uh, simple mission, but the work is quite complicated because, you know, over the past century almost, we have built a social safety net in this country. We, there's a whole political conversation about its details and, and, and what goes into it, but we do have a social safety net and programs that we have created such as Medicare and Medicaid, uh, SNAP or what used to be called food stamps, Pell Grants and other things um, that are there to help people uh, get through tough times and meet some of their essential needs. But these programs have been grown into being very complicated. Uh, that makes it very difficult for people, many people left to their own devices to navigate and apply for these benefits. And so that means that every year, tens of billions of dollars of public investment that could go to reducing hunger and improving healthcare goes to waste. And so BDT was created to help be that bridge and connect people to those benefits. So you see a new opportunity now with regard to broadband and a, a new benefit that's been, I suppose, formalized in the infrastructure bill. Can you, can you tell us about this affordable connectivity program? This is really a, a, a historic opportunity uh, where tens of billions of dollars have been put towards helping people afford uh, broadband internet access. Now that assumes that there is the broadband infrastructure in their communities, in their neighborhoods, and that reach their homes. But even once you lay all of the infrastructure, uh, people still need to be able to afford the service. And so this program um, is putting an extraordinary amount of money and effort uh, at the federal level, at the uh, state level, um, so that consumers can have more resources in their pocket to be able to get broadband. Now, when you're talking about people who are facing challenging times and have a hard time buying food and heating their homes, it may make you wonder, well, you know, is, is, is broad something like broadband access, internet, is that an optional extra? Is that a distraction from, from the core needs? The truth is uh, broadband is an essential part of life these days, just like water and power and sewer to be connected to life and I think the, the real opportunity is that having access to broadband can open up a number of opportunities for people to meet their health needs, education needs, connect to the economy and be employed. Um, and so this is really a big deal. I should certainly hope in the year of our Lord 2022 that after Omicron has swept across the country and two years of pandemic that no one would look at broadband as an unnecessary add-on uh, to people's lives. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how this benefit may roll out at the last, not even the last mile, I guess the last foot. Um, how do people get this benefit into their homes? Um, what do you know about how that's working right now uh, with the emergency uh, benefit that's been put in place due to COVID? And how will the Affordable Connectivity Program institutionalize that? Well, just, just to your earlier point, um, I think we would like to assume that, that after everything that's going on, that, that people would know that broadband access is just a life essential. But, but I do think, and particularly when we are talking about government spending and a public benefits program and knowing, you know, look, we should assume that, that people know intuitively that being able to buy a decent bag of groceries is an essential part of life. 
And yet we have a lot of resistance and stigma around programs such as SNAP and WIC. And so I think it's, it is worth reflection for most of us to think about how would we have gone through this pandemic for those of us who have the luxury and opportunity to be to, to have kept our jobs because we could take our laptops and work from home and do other things. Imagine if this pandemic had happened 40 years ago, where we, where we would be in our lives. But to, to, to your other question, so I think there, there, there are two things. I mean, one, again, there's the, there's the sort of pipes and, and other things of the physical infrastructure. But in terms of the consumer infrastructure that this benefit provides, yes, as part of the initial COVID response, there was an emergency broadband benefit that was created that put cash or, or the cash equivalent into people's pockets. They were able to tap it to be able to pay for, uh, pay for the service. Um, and this builds on top of that and, and makes it, puts it on firmer footing, but it also builds a number of consumer protections and standards into the program so that uh, you know, consumers can not only get, get the services they need, but that we know that it's, it's gonna be done in a responsible way. One of the interesting parts about this benefit is that it not only builds on the emergency broadband benefit that was created at the start of the pandemic, um, it actually builds on the infrastructure of the old policy infrastructure of the old universal telephone service benefit that has been around for generations. And the important part of that is that the benefit, the cash equivalent of this benefit goes to the consumer. And so then the consumer can make the decision on which provider um, that's available in their community is best for them. So quite literally, explain to me, um, if I'm a person who needs access to this benefit, how do I get the money into my hands? And how do I then spend it on broadband service? Do I have a card? Do I have, uh, you know, an account? Um, How does that work? So how those, how that will actually roll out is being worked on by the, by the federal agencies and how people draw that down in kind of the real tangible sense. But the overall is that the benefit is about $30 a month. Um, It is direct to consumer. And then the consumer can then um, decide on which provider to, to tap uh, in their community. But the point about, right, but what does this mean for real people? Um, that's actually a very important question, even in terms of how we'll ensure that people take this benefit up. Because we have learned in, in Benefits Data Trust work that just because you create a program and just because it meets an essential life need does not mean that people will be able to navigate the system. It does not mean that amidst all of the other pressures um, and challenges that people are facing in their life, that they will say that, ah, this is the thing that I will spend my time on as I'm trying to, to figure out if I can get another job or make sure that my kid goes to school. And so that's why we need to really focus on how do we ensure that as many people as possible take this benefit up how do we use the resources at hand, particularly within the government agencies and with other benefits programs? How do we deploy that to ensure that all of the pressure just isn't on the individual to somehow know magically that there's something out there for them, but it has to be an eased and streamlined to get into people's pockets. So you have this piece in Tech Policy Press where you're calling for 
government agencies to kind of align, break down those silos. What are the agencies involved here? Which ones do you think need to come to the table? So I think it's it's really thinking about the core public benefits that we have that serve tens of millions of households already. So that's the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's the Department of Education. Um, that's the Department of Health and Human Services um, that run the programs such as SNAP, such as Medicaid, the Pell Grant program. And they have uh, done a lot of work and we are proud to do work with them in this in the state and county um, counterparts who administer these, these programs. They understand how challenging it can be to, to, for on uptake and have done work to make things easier. And so part of it is, is instead of seeing the broadband benefit as this island in its own right, how do we use the broader infrastructure and relationships that we already have with people in helping them get healthcare and buy food and go to school? How do you integrate broadband into those conversations and into those benefits. And so one of the important things that this law allows is that if you are eligible for some of these core benefits, such as Pell Grants, you are automatically considered eligible for the broadband benefit. And that's a big deal because traditionally with benefits, you may be eligible for one, but then you have to go through the rigmarole of figuring out if you're eligible for the adjacent benefit. But by presuming that folks are eligible for the broadband benefit, that in itself creates a great opportunity to reach out to people on those core programs to connect them to broadband benefits. Are people going to naturally sort of say to themselves, um, I, you know, I would like to have a, a mobile device, um, maybe not put broadband into my into my home for, for me, any reason. I mean, they, you know, perhaps I'm in a more itinerant situation or I'm renting um, and I don't want to run a cable. Um, would this benefit potentially also apply to mobile connections? Well, these the, the service certainly should be should be relevant. And frankly, it might make in terms of whether you, um, uh, you know, are making a decision to get a device. It actually makes it more relevant because, you know, if, if you're if you're you know struggling to make ends meet, the idea of spending your money to get a device when you may have no or spotty uh, service. Uh, or going to the library or going to your local fast food uh, parking lot to, to pick up uh, an internet signal, uh, that doesn't make sense for a lot of people. But if you can remove some of the, the financial barriers to getting the broadband service, it, increase, it, it, it makes it more reasonable and more interesting to get the devices and then figuring out what do you do with it. Now, I think that part is really interesting. Because if you're thinking about how busy people are who, are who are trying to make ends meet and get through tough times, there's a reasonable question to ask, well, okay, I'm struggling to buy food. Why, why, should I, why do I need broadband? But here's the opportunity that I think we have. Imagine if we had a conversation about broadband access, not only in its own right, but when you're registering for classes at the local community college. Or imagine if when you are uh, taking your, your child to the pediatrician uh, and you're a Medicaid consumer, that there is a conversation about telemedicine. And hey, you know what? If you had broadband, we could have done this checkup over your device instead of you having to jump on two buses or spend money that you don't have paying for a, a, a car hire service to come in for the checkup. So then it, it becomes a meaningful thing, not only about just broadband in its own right, but how is broadband 
going to help me address some of the priorities in my life. And so I think if we start by ensuring that health and human services, education, agriculture, integrate this broadband benefit into their work, then I think we can think about, well, how do we have these conversations where people actually live and where our lives actually happen, which is in the healthcare setting, in the education setting, in other places. And I think that's how we're going to actually maximize what digital equity and broadband access is about. Is there a window of opportunity now for the listener potentially to influence this at all? Is there something that folks can do to to try to influence this discussion, or is this more happening, you know, uh, amongst individuals like you who are, are more close in to these conversations with these agencies? You know, I I think we're we are at a time and have been at a, in a time of a lot of hard, challenging, and important conversations in this country over the past several years, uh, be it public health and the pandemic, be it the racial equity, uh, racial equity and racial justice conversation, uh, be it the the uh, gender gender equity and workplace conversation. So we we are in a moment of great and mighty conversations in this country. And I think there is an opportunity um, if we think about the broadband benefit and digital equity, not just as something that, you know, tech nerds and people who kind of are all into things like this um, uh, uh, care about. But if we think about what are the drivers that this, this can help energize? And so even folks who are connected in technology circles and innovation circles making this part of the broader conversation of, you know, all the things we said the internet could do for better healthcare and better education and better job opportunities, what we've been saying for 30 plus years, what it could do. Well, now guess what? If we can ensure that the tens of millions of households who are without broadband access actually get it, we're actually creating a potential marketplace where telemedicine for low and moderate income families done in a way that is competent around race and gender and other ways, that's a marketplace to actually make this happen. Now, we can't just focus on the technology and just focus on the service. We need to make sure that we are having the hard conversations around race and gender and economic class and other things. But we're having those conversations now. So I think for your listeners and others who are in influential circles, be it with government folks or in the private sector or with uh, investors and others, integrating this into those conversations would be a really big deal. The infrastructure bill does have in it some provisions for uh, workforce training um, and other types of, of benefits that would uh, also uh, have something to do with you know broadband and and use of the web. Are you familiar with those uh, benefits and 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 what? What's in mind in the legislation? Yeah, so you know, I, I think on the on the workforce side of things, there there are a few things, and this this goes to ensuring that we not only think about the utility that is broadband access, but we think about the applications and the impact, and that spans a few things. One, let's remember that the infrastructure side of this is a massive job opportunity, and it's going to be a multi year job opportunity. And so we really need to focus on and accelerate efforts around opportunity and equity within those career tracks. I think it's, an, it's yet another reminder to us about ensuring that we have the STEM career pipeline and that we get more of those kids who are taking algebra in middle school so that they can get on that pipeline to be in 
uh, STEM fields when they're in higher education or in the careers. But then on the other side, I think there's a question of, okay, I have broadband access. I have a device. I need a job. What does this mean? And doing a job that may be a remote job or that requires connectivity is very different in many ways to if you were going into a physical office and punching the clock. So what does that mean from a skills point of view, both hard skills and soft skills, that, so that we can make, make the most of, of what this is really about? Well, in this uh, time of, of great social concern and unrest uh, as part of this pandemic, it feels to me like this is a reason to be optimistic that some of these benefits will uh, reach the people that need it out in the community and uh, will be able to create opportunity. I, I think it absolutely is. I think if we, if we get the technical sides and the infrastructure pieces correct, but also remember that the real name of the, you know, the, the nitty gritty is the consumer side and how the consumers afford it. But then as part of this, have the expansive conversations around, now, how do we apply this? What's this go towards? You know, it would be an overstatement to equate broadband access to water, of course. But let's remember that one of the most revolutionary uh, moments in technology were public water systems at scale. And imagine all the implications of that and the applications of that in the, you know, many going, going back in history and what that means. But we had to figure out how to apply it. And we had to make sure that there was equity attached to it. And so I think we can draw a lot of those same lessons, be it talking about water infrastructure or transportation infrastructure and other basics that we take for granted. We can apply some of those same lessons to today talking about broadband and how it works and making sure that digital equity just isn't a term used in wonky circles, but is actually a reality. Trooper, where can folks follow your work? You can find us on the web at bdtrust.org. Um, and then, of course, we are, we are on uh, uh, Twitter and social media as well. Trooper Sanders, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.